Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Karatika, a cinematic martial arts fighting game developed by Jordan Mechner, published by Broderbund, and released in 1984 for the Apple II computer, and later ported to the C64 and other computer platforms, as well as various 1980s consoles like the Famicom and Atari 7800. We are going to talk about that in just a minute or so, but first, just a little bit of housekeeping, as is customary. This is episode number 24, and I am excited to be here. I hope you all are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, or give me suggestions about future episodes, or talk about this episode, or really pretty much just talk about anything to do with classic gaming technology or anything like that, there are a couple of ways you can reach out to me. You can send me an email at classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So feel free to reach out if you feel so inclined. I would love to hear from you and have the discussion. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to talk very briefly about the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game and the historical context of the game. Where does it sit in the overall history of video and computer gaming? And then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section, and I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numeric ranking or anything like that, but we do talk about each game from several different perspectives, those being... The graphics, how does the game look, sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does the game feel like to play today versus when it was released 20, 30, however many years ago? We do all that in order to reach a verdict to determine how well the game has held up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game makes it into the Pantheon, you know it's going to be a good time. You should still play it today. These are the tops of the top. They are verifiable classics. You would have no issue playing them today. They pretty much have not aged at all, and they are just amazing experiences, even however many years after they were released. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still great games. They're still highly recommended that you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the title itself or you enjoy the genre. You're almost guaranteed to have a good time. Not quite Pantheon level, but still darn good experiences. Moving on, we then get to the Mediocre Mentions. These are the games where we start getting into the... I can't really recommend them territory. If you have particular uh, nostalgia for the game or you love the genre in which it lives, sure, go ahead and play it. You might still have a good time. But these are games that have either not aged particularly well or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with that brought their overall quality down. Once again, I cannot recommend to the general population that you play anything that falls under a mediocre mention And then beyond that, we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. These games I cannot recommend to anybody to play. They are just not that great. They may have aged incredibly poorly, or they just may not have been all that good to begin with. 
With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Karatika. Karatika is a cinematic martial arts fighting game developed by Jordan Mechner and published by Broderbund back in 1984 for the Apple II computer, which would then later get ported to other computer platforms as well as various consoles from the 1980s. The creation of Karatika provides unique insight into the early days of computer game development, during which time a number of aspiring developers, enthralled by evolving computer technology, decided to begin making interactive experiences that would eventually turn computers from productivity devices into full-fledged gaming machines. And Jordan Mechner was one such individual who had dreams of making it big in the nascent computer game industry. And this particular story is as much about the creation of a game as it is about the evolution of an early game developer. Now, the interesting thing with this one is that unlike many of these stories, Jordan Mechner kept a detailed, nearly daily journal of all of his early development efforts. And most of what we're going to talk about here comes directly from those journals versus a secondhand interpretation of the history. So I do recommend, by the way, if anybody is interested check out his journals on Amazon. He has a set of journals for Karataka. He also has a set of journals for Prince of Persia, which was the game released immediately after Karataka. Fascinating stuff. If you're into game development or game history, really interesting to read. For our story, we're going to begin in 1982, at which time Jordan Mechner was a student at Yale University. At the time, Mechner had been working on several early gaming titles, one of which was a modification and evolution of the classic arcade game Asteroids. So for any who may be unaware, Asteroids is or was an arcade title, and its core concept was that you are a ship stuck in the middle of an asteroid field. You have the ability to turn, you can apply thrust to move around the screen, and you could shoot missiles to blow up asteroids before they would ultimately hit you. The concept was incredibly simple, but it was also incredibly popular. And by the end of 1980, its gross sales would eclipse $700 million worldwide, which if you adjust for inflation, would be approximately $2 billion. That my friends, is a lot of quarters. Now, most early game developers got their start trying to replicate arcade experiences like Asteroids and other arcade games that were out there, and they tried to replicate those experiences on computers of the time, and Mechner was no different. His early work focused on recreating Asteroids and then, eventually, iterating on it, resulting in a new title called Death Bounce, which was his main focus during his first year or two at Yale. Death Bounce was a title that Mechner believed could be a huge hit, and he often had dreams of selling thousands upon thousands of copies and eventually being set for life. To sell that title, though, he would need the help of a publisher. So let's talk about computer software distribution in the early 80s. And we've talked a little bit about this in some prior episodes, but really, around the early 80s, there was not this broad, widespread publishing and distribution network for computer software. A lot of times, aspiring developers could get into the industry in one of several ways. They could either independently 
publish their work, which basically meant they were advertising in local computer stores, or maybe if they get lucky, they get their submission accepted by one of the software distribution magazines of the time and starts to get a little bit of recognition that way. They could also work with one of what were a few higher profile software publishers that were springing up around that time. We had companies like Broderbund and Electronic Arts. Yes, the same Electronic Arts that exist today and Online Systems, which was Sierra Online's predecessor. Now, at the time, most publishing companies contracted with developers in addition to having teams of in-house staff that would churn out titles. So they were very much focused on not just building an internal team of developers to create their games, but they also worked a lot of contracts with freelance developers. And because at this time there were so many aspiring developers out there since computers and computer technology were evolving rapidly, and this was something that was literally happening in real time at this point. Uh, They had a lot of contract work that they would look for different submissions from different people, and if the game was good, they would offer them some sort of deal to publish and some royalties or something like that, depending on how well it would sell. So Mechner was in this situation. He was an aspiring developer. He wanted to publish his game Death Bounce, and his first choice, and the company that he believed he could make the biggest impact with, was Broderbund. He had been a fan of some of their prior published titles, most notably a game called Choplifter that had been published back in 1982 and developed by a man named Dan Gorland. So Dan was contracted with Broderbund. He created this game called Choplifter and Broderbund ultimately published it. Jordan Mechner was a big fan of that game. So Mechner and Broderbund went back and forth several times trying to refine the overall gameplay mechanics and features of Death Bounce, with Mechner making any requested changes in the hopes of eventually selling the title to the company. And throughout all of these exchanges, Mechner had been attempting to balance schoolwork, Death Bounce revisions, his deep love of cinema. The guy loved going to the movies, by the way. He had a a very deep appreciation of cinema and cinematic experiences and just the whole act of creating film. He was really uh, focused and loved that kind of thing. And as a result, he would go to the movies a lot as well. So he was working, trying to do school, trying to balance school, working on Death Bounce, trying to balance his other love, which was the cinema. And also he was continuously having other ideas for games that were popping up in his head. It was just one of those things where he was almost overactive with trying to do everything that he was trying to do. Not to say that all of that stuff got the same exact attention because based on his journals, his schoolwork, eh, they probably didn't didn't probably get as much attention as it should have, but he was trying to balance a lot of things around that time. So school did take a backseat to everything else, but like I said, it was still a lot to juggle even with that. During one of the exchanges between Mechner and Broderbund, Broderbund had sent him a copy of Choplifter to play, which caused Mechner to start thinking about game development a little bit differently. Up until that point, Mechner had been focused on making clones or derivations of existing arcade titles. And as he played Choplifter, he realized that a game didn't have to be a copy of what came before. It could be a wholly unique experience. It didn't have to just be a derivative of something that had already been created. It could be truly unique. So one day, as Mechner was blowing off school and spending time at the movie theaters, which pretty much described almost any day during his early Yale years, 
he came up with an idea for a new game. What if he created a cinematic-styled game where you played as a karate master who had to rescue the love of your life from the clutches of an evil warlord? Rather than focus on pure arcade-style gameplay where high scores were the driving force for your adventure, this title would focus more on the story and the impact of each individual fight. So Mechner called upon his film experience to help him conceptualize the game's style and mechanics. Beyond being a film lover, Mechner also had a strong desire from a young age to create and direct his own movies. He even participated in the Yale Film Club as one of the organization's leads, taking the opportunity to attend various discussions that were held with Hollywood industry veterans. Mechner considered that instead of making a movie, he could potentially make a game that was styled like a movie. So basically trying to combine his love of game development with his love of the cinema to create something that was the intersection of the two. And that general concept of trying to create that cinematic interactive experience is what would eventually evolve into Karataka. Work began on the game, and one of his first tasks was to work on the graphics. He began by drawing out several characters, but he quickly realized that in order to get the quality of animation that he wanted from the title and the smoothness of motion he was targeting, hand-drawing everything from scratch was going to be incredibly time-consuming. And once again, he wanted something that felt real. He wanted something that felt like you were watching a movie or controlling a movie. So these graphics had to be stellar. They had to just, everything had to be had to be perfect. It had to have the right sense of motion, the right sense of framing. It, it had to look the part. And when he started drawing those graphics and drawing the animations by hand, he realized quickly that this was just not something that he was going to be able to feasibly do in a, or in any reasonable amount of time. So he decided to pursue a technique that he had previously learned about during his film studies, which was called rotoscoping. So let's talk about rotoscoping. And it feels like we talk about rotoscoping, or at least we have talked about rotoscoping several times in the podcast so far, but that's just because it was something that was very useful and very much used in early animation whenever anybody was trying to create something that felt more lifelike for computer games or video games. So what is rotoscoping? Effectively what it is, is filming actions or actually taking film and filming somebody or a group of people doing something, performing an action, and then rather than use that film directly, somebody would trace or draw over those individual frames of video to create an animated sequence. But the animated sequence was based on the motion that was captured in the video. This was done a lot in early Disney films, wherever you might see a large dance scene or ball scene in some of the older princess movies, the reason that the animation looks so lifelike and fluid is because it utilized rotoscoping. They actually filmed people performing those dances and they had somebody rotoscope that film so that it would then create the actual animations that you would see in the movie. So he decided that he wanted to use rotoscoping for the animations and the graphics in this new game. He had also been attending a karate class around this time, which is another one of the reasons why he decided to create a game based on a karate master. So with that, the fact that he was attending that class, he decided to ask his karate instructor if he would mind being filmed performing various moves, which would ostensibly be used for the rotoscoping that Mechner wanted to do. 
His instructor agreed, and they went off to film a number of karate moves and movements to serve as the basis of animation for the game. So he went off, they filmed it. He had his footage in hand. He sat down to begin rotoscoping the fluid movements, only to discover that the film didn't turn out as expected. It didn't capture the motions appropriately. It was basically unusable. Luckily, his instructor agreed to record another session, and this time the footage would work. So Mechner sat down and he converted the individual frames of film into animations utilizing his rotoscoping technique, eventually implementing initial movement into the game. And as soon as he showed this rough prototype to friends, he immediately received incredibly positive praise. He knew he was on to something. His friends knew he was on to something. And everyone believed this would truly be a game changer. While he would continue to refine the animation throughout the game's development, he at least had a path forward. Now he'd have to work through the rest of the game's mechanics, as well as overcome some obstacles with the Apple II capabilities. So Mechner began adding moves to the game, a variety of punches and kicks, and he synced those actions up to the animations he had captured via rotoscoping. Over time, this moveset would be reduced and streamlined, as several of the attacks were very similar to others, and didn't really add much to the overall experience of the game. As he worked on the moves and got those a little bit more hammered down, attention then turned to the overall level design and story, which would similarly feature various refinements over the course of the game's developments. The original premise for the game was effectively a one-on-one -on -one combat title, where you would fight multiple enemies in sequence in a very sparse karate dojo kind of setting with mats on the floor. Think almost like some of the scenes from Karate Kid, if anybody has seen that original movie where you're in this dojo and you have mats around and you have just one-on-one -on -one kind of fights. That was the original concept or the original premise for Karateka. Mechner, though, had a very collaborative relationship with his father when he was making these games. And at the urging of his father, as well as Mechner's own desire to create a more cinematic experience, he decided to change the setting, drawing inspiration from classic samurai and martial arts films. So rather than a karate dojo, your character would be assaulting an impenetrable enemy fortress. Rather than only fighting on one screen, you'd progress through the fortress, encountering different enemies as you go, until eventually you reach the end boss and save your love interest. With that setting finalized, he went to work on evolving the concept. What started as sparse stages would evolve to include background elements, including Mount Fuji, that would scroll horizontally with you, creating what can best be described as an early form of parallax scrolling. At least it felt like parallax scrolling to me. I didn't actually find anything specific that said, yes, this is actual parallax scrolling, which is, for anybody who doesn't know, the motion is as you move side or sideways, as you move uh, on a side-scrolling kind of plane, the background moves at a little bit of a slower speed, which creates an additional sense of depth. So I don't know that Mechner's work was was truly parallax scrolling based on the definition of it, but he did implement scrolling with background images out there, which did actually create a much more cinematic feel for the game. It did make each scene feel like it had much more depth than what he had originally conceptualized. Over time, Mechner would continue to refine the gameplay mechanics, eventually settling on guards moving at half of your speed, while Akuma, the main boss of the game, would be sped up to match your speed. And we're talking about the animations and the speed of actually delivering punches and kicks and other moves like that. 
Mechner would also add an additional enemy to the game, a vulture, who occasionally would be sent to attack the player, forcing you to drop into combat stance to avoid an instant death. Music for the title would be composed by Jordan Mechner's father, Francis, who composed specific themes for each main character and major action, like winning the game. While the musical capabilities of the Apple II were fairly primitive, he took great effort to compose something that would fit into the game, and Jordan took his father's music and implemented it finally into Karataka. By the way, Francis, Jordan Mechner's father, seemed to be a pretty interesting guy himself. By the time he had turned 19, he was a concert pianist, a ranked chess master, and an accomplished artist, and he would go on to have a long career as a research psychologist. And, of course, act as the musical composer for Jordan Mechner's early games. So, the music was created, they were putting it into the game, there was only one issue. The Apple II couldn't play music and animate scenes at the same time. It was just something that wasn't really done. And this, once again, goes back to the fact that computers of the time were not thought of as gaming devices. They were thought of as productivity machines. So why would the machine need to animate a scene and play music at the same time? If you're working on a word processor, you probably wouldn't need to do something like that. But for a game, you would. So Mechner hit this issue where he couldn't have music and animation playing at the same time. So he turned back and started thinking about his film studies. And Mechner decided that including cutscenes and dramatic moments in the game, during which time music would play, followed by animation, would create an even more cinematic experience without exposing the limitation to the player. So he kind of framed each of these cutscenes with a musical stinger or a musical interlude at the beginning as everybody is standing around not doing anything and then the animation plays and it almost feels more dramatic without the music playing the way he designed it it was a very creative workaround to a hardware limitation eventually mechner got the game in such a state that the game could be formally shown to potential publishers Brodebund showed immediate interest and they actually invited mechner to work with them in their office for the summer so Mechner boarded a plane for California and set to work on completing the game. Over that summer, he would meet some of his idols, like the Choplifter creator Dan Gorlin, and worked with a number of individuals at the forefront of the new computer game industry. This experience solidified the fact that Mechner wanted to work on computer games, and he truly believed he could be successful in the field. Everyone he met suggested that Karataka would be a big seller, so his hopes were very high. But reality can sometimes fall short of expectations. The only way to know if the game would be a success would be to release it. Now, he didn't quite complete the title while he was at Brodobun's office over the summer, but he did finish development shortly after returning home, and the game would release in December of 1984, just before the critical holiday shopping season. When Mechner received the first box copy of his game, which he also worked on due to some issues with the marketing company that Broderbund had contracted with, he knew his dream of becoming an actual published game developer was a reality. Early indications were that the game would sell well, as computer stores local to Mechner couldn't keep the game in stock. He was actually calling the local computer stores, and all they kept saying was, I can't, I don't have any copies. I'm, I'm selling everything that I get and I'm ordering more copies. So Mechner had considerably higher hopes just based on that feedback. Unfortunately, when the official sales figures came out, it turned out the game wasn't yet selling all that well 
at the global level. And Mechner's first royalty check was for somewhere around $30, which was much less than the millions of dollars that he dreamt of making as he was developing this game. That, however, turned out to be a blip, as Karataka would quickly begin getting the attention of critics and gamers alike. Over the months that followed, Karataka sales would continue to increase until finally, in mid-1985, Karataka would top the Billboard charts for software sales while getting a ton of industry accolades. It was, unequivocally, a success. Karataka would be ported to numerous platforms of the time, most notably the Commodore 64 and Atari 800, some of which even allowed additional capabilities beyond the Apple II original, such as higher quality music in the case of the Commodore 64, which Mechner's father once again orchestrated. All told, Karataka would sell over 500,000 units over its lifetime. Karataka was an incredibly influential game, and would serve as an early example of an experience that went beyond arcade-like games. Rather than simply playing for a high score, you'd be playing for much higher stakes, a cinema-like story of love, revenge, and action. Critics would praise the game's storyline, gameplay, and incredibly fluid animation, heralding the title as a breakthrough in computer entertainment. Karataka itself would eventually be remade in 2012 via a project that Jordan Mechner himself spearheaded and led. That title would release on the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 and would, similar to the original, have a very focused gameplay loop whereby you participate in a series of one-on-one fights until eventually you face off with the big bad guy of the game and save your love interest. Now, I have not played this version of the title just for full awareness and transparency. What I did read was that the general gameplay was almost kind of like a rhythm game where you would have to recognize different patterns that the enemies were trying to use in their attacks and you would have to counterattack at the right time and kind of go back and forth like that in almost a rhythmic ballet of martial arts it sounded awesome the gameplay actually looks kind of kind of interesting to me i just have not played it yet but this remake it was intended to be very similar to the original game obviously much higher quality graphics much higher quality music the gameplay and controls were refined now that it was being made in 2012 versus 1984 so there were a lot of changes there but the fact that mechner himself let it added a certain degree of credibility because he wasn't going to let something come out that didn't align with his vision. Now, interestingly, I can't find any particular sales numbers for the Karataka remake, but I do think it's interesting that Mechner stayed very close to the core gameplay loop of his original. It was largely unchanged from the 1984 version of the game, just kind of spruced up, well, dramatically spruced up in comparison to the limitations of the 1984 version of Karataka, but still an interesting aspect of video game history nonetheless, that this would be remade. And to be completely honest, I didn't even realize that Karataka had been remade. It flew under the radar from my perspective. It was released on the online systems of Xbox and PS3, so the uh, Xbox Arcade and the PS3 or PSN Marketplace. So it was completely under my radar back in 2012 when it came out. I didn't even recognize it was there until I was doing some research for this podcast. Now, of course, I do want to check it out eventually. 
Beyond Karataka, Mechner would work on a number of other games over the decades, and they would all follow a similar concept in that he always wanted to make things that felt cinematic. All of his games continued to marry his love of cinema with narrative-driven game development, which ended up creating truly interactive cinematic experiences that players the world over would hold in high regard. Whether you played Karataka when it was released, or you simply experienced its influences in later years, the fact remains that it is a title that holds an important place in history. Beyond its own game-centric elements, it represents a young Yale student's fulfilled dream of becoming a published game developer, a dream that many programmers in the early 80s shared. Mechner and Karataka were that one-in-a-million kind of situation that simply knocked it out of the park. This will likely not be the last time we talk about Jordan Mechner, but regardless of what we talk about in the future, Karataka stands on its own as a landmark title in gaming history. We are now going to transition into discussing how it felt to play Karataka today versus when it was released 40 years ago, which, if I remember correctly, this might be the oldest game that we've covered so far on the podcast. So this is an interesting one. So Karataka was a cinematic or is a cinematic martial arts fighting game. And the general style for the game, beyond being cinematic, and we'll talk about why it's so cinematic and, and kind of how it comes across when you play it, but the way it works is you are a karate master and you are progressing through and into this evil warlord's lair, so to speak. And in order to do that, you have to progress from left to right on several different screens, fighting one-on-one -on -one battles against guards and other kinds of enemies. They're all kind of guard-esque. There is one non-traditional enemy, which is the vulture. We'll talk about that one. But for the most part, you're fighting one-on-one -on -one against other humanoid characters, and you are yourself, obviously, a human as you're navigating through the game. So let's talk about the cinematic element of the game, because that was really Karataka's claim to fame. That is what set it apart from other games. So back in the 80s, in the early 80s in particular, most of gaming was focused on what was called the arcade kind of experience. And that basically meant that games were meant to be played and replayed with the hopes of getting a high score. That was really the intent of gaming at the time. The biggest thing you were trying to do was trying to beat the high score of your friends or get your name immortalized or your, at least your initials immortalized on the high score table of a given arcade title, which is where if you ever watch some of the older kind of Guinness world records or the different world records around certain arcade game high scores, that's really what it's been focused on is how do you get the highest score possible? And like we talked about, Mechner was trying early on to recreate those arcade experiences or create derivations of those arcade experiences at home. He eventually decided to shift away from that and create something that was more unique. And that was Karataka. So as he sat down to create the game, he wanted to focus on making a more movie-like experience. So if you play the game, you do have some game elements. This is not like Out of This World, which we talked about on a prior episode, where there is no game element included on the screen whatsoever. It was basically just a screen into the game world. On Karataka, there are some game elements included, like a sort of life bar momentum meter at the bottom of the screen that shows you how close you are to defeating your enemy or vice versa, how close they are to defeating you. 
But the way that the game was created was to really make it look and feel like a movie. And there were a number of ways that Mechner went about doing that. So when you play the game, you have a side-scrolling view of the action. And each individual fight, when you approach a enemy, you approach from the left, the enemy comes in from the right. And there are a few different ways that enemies approach or that you approach enemies. At the very beginning of the game, you kind of just walk up and there's an enemy there on the very first screen that you have to fight. One of the moves you can do is a bow move. So you can bow in honor to the enemy you're about to fight. And the enemy will actually bow back if you haven't started attacking it yet. So right out of the gate, it almost feels like what you would see in a martial arts movie where you have these two incredible karate masters that are about to face off and do battle, yet they recognize that there's still honor amongst them. So even in the unwritten, and, and you don't even have to bow, I mean, it's not a requirement of the game, but if you do abs- if you do happen to do that, the guard bows back. So it's interesting that Mechner was thinking about that. Everything that he did with this game was with the concept of how would this work in a cinematic kind of way? And he really did achieve that goal. So the way the game would play is you would have a series of one-on-one duels with martial arts masters. And every single fight, for the most part, had a very cinematic feeling backdrop to the game. When you start out, you're outside of the evil warlord's lair. And in the background, you can see uh, Mount Fuji. You can see that you're kind of overlooking a bunch of mountains. And yes, the graphics were pretty primitive, but it still had a sense of cinematic framing. Like this is how a director would frame a fight in cinema. It's not just the way Mechner decided to do it for the game. This is something that could translate technically into a movie style direction. So he made sure to include those elements in the game. When you eventually move in to the lair, to the Warlord's Castle, and start moving, there are certain sections of that first level where there's a window, and you can see through the window, and you can see the mountain in the background of the stage. So it almost creates this sense of place. Like It's not like you're going into these formless areas or you're getting transported or teleported elsewhere in a game world. It's like you're following a camera as a major action star starts moving through this evil enemy lair, which felt awesome. And you could really tell that Mechner was focused on cinematic studies when he created the backdrops for the game and when he created the overall style for playing through the game. There are a series of stages, so to speak, that you go throughout the game. It is not that long of an experience. When when you think about stages in this context, it basically means, there's. I'll actually just go through them. There is an outside area where you first encounter your first enemy and the way the game starts is you actually climbing up a mountain or climbing up a cliff and you start attacking or you go into a fight with your first enemy. You then progress inside to an interior hallway which you then start running from the left and trying to progress over to get to the far right hand side of the screen. Along the way you have to beat a number of different guards in order to get to that uh, that exit. Uh, Then you have, beyond that hallway, there are a number of rooms you have to progress through. Once again, 
battling other guards until eventually you reach the final fight, which is where Akuma, who is the main bad guy of the game, is keeping your princess held hostage or your love interest held hostage who happens to be a princess. Over the course of the game, depending on how quickly you play through it, you'll fight around 15-ish enemies or so. And I say around 15-ish enemies because there are a couple, the early stages in particular, it's not like there are three guards in the hallway. The way the game works is the more you progress or the slower you progress, the more guards will come at you. So the way you would get through that is you want to attack and beat the guard as quickly as possible. Then you drop out of your combat stance, go into a run stance. You run as fast as you can. Eventually, you'll encounter another guard. You fight them and you keep going on. If you just stand still after you beat a guard, there's going to be another guard that's going to be running up to you and you will never get out of that stage. So there is a certain degree of how you play the game is going to translate directly into how long the game takes and how many enemies you fight over the course of the game. And the general gameplay loop for this particular title is pretty darn simple, I will admit. It basically involves walking forward, fighting an enemy, walking forward, fighting another enemy, doing that again around 15 times. So it is a simple gameplay loop, and it sounds simple because it is, but there is something more here, and we're going to talk about why there's something more and what that something more is, because it is a game that transcends the simplicity of its gameplay loop. So we're going to get to that. But first, as you're going through the game, the other ways, or there's a bunch of other ways that it truly is a simple experience. There's only really two enemy types as you work your way through the game. There's a martial arts fighter who are basically the guard's throughout the entire experience. There are some variations of the design for those guards, but for the most part, they have the same exact moves. The only difference is the final boss of the game moves much faster than the guards that you fight up to that point. But otherwise, they have the same exact moves that you do, and they their design really only differs very slightly from one to the other. They're, the other enemy type that's in the game is the pet vulture or pet eagle of the main bad guy of the game. And that gets sent after you a couple of different times. One time near the end of the game, you actually have to defeat the eagle in order to move forward onto the final fight. The game, when it starts, does have an introductory cutscene, and there is an ending cutscene as well. And there's also some text that gets included to tell the overall story for the game. So Mechner was trying to create this very narrative kind of feel, and he did provide some very high level story. It wasn't like there was a ton of text there, but it did set the stage really well at the beginning. And it does draw everything to a satisfying conclusion when you do eventually beat the game. And those cutscenes that were included beyond the intro and the ending sequence the cutscenes that were included were a very early example of a cinematic style cutscene in computer games. And I do think it's important, even if you don't play the game, it's interesting to watch the cutscenes. And not because the cutscenes are amazing graphical powerhouses of cinematic awesomeness. They're not. They're very simple. But pay attention to the cutscenes and the animations and watch the cutscenes and listen to the music that plays and when the music plays. 
the music, like we said, will only play when the animations aren't happening, when the scene is still. And the animations will only play when there's no sound, which, once again, is a limitation of the Apple II hardware. You couldn't play animations and generate music at the same time. And you would think that that would be prohibitive, because many games that you play today have sound and animation and motion all integrated together. But the way that Mechner framed the cutscenes was so cinematic, it just feels like it makes sense. If I didn't know that there was an issue with playing sound and animations at the same time on the Apple II, I would have never even recognized there was a limitation. The way he designed it, it appeared to be more of an artistic choice versus a hardware limitation. And if you watch that cutscene, if you go out to YouTube where you play the game and you watch the cutscene, you're not going to think that, oh, this is, he really had to cut corners because of the Apple II's limitations. No, it's just going to feel like a dramatic cinematic cutscene, which I thought was awesome, the way he masked the limitation of the hardware to create something more than what it was. Let's talk a little bit about the moves that you have in the game, because basically the gameplay boils down to the moves that you have available to you. So you have, as well as all of the enemies you face, have six different moves that you can use. You have a high, middle, and low punch, and a high, middle, and low kick. In order to use those moves, you have to drop into fighting stance. So there are two stances that you have available to you throughout the game. There's a fighting stance and a movement stance. If you are in movement stance, you cannot throw any sort of punches or kicks. You also do not want to approach an enemy while you're in movement stance. Otherwise, you will die if they hit you. You must be in fighting stance in order to stand a chance at all against an enemy. And beyond that, you have to be in fighting stance to be able to throw a punch or a kick. You can bow. If you linger, though, and like I said, when you bow, the guard will bow back to you. At least the first one does. I don't know if every single one of them does. I didn't test that, but the first one does bow back. But if you stay bowed or you just kind of walk forward and think, oh, well, we're honorable now, the enemy will punch you one time and you will die. Now, if you do die, you restart the game. There are no lives. There are no continues. So even if you got to the very last fight and you end up dying or getting beaten, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the game and restart it. It's actually not that bad since the whole game can be beaten in around 20-ish minutes or so, but it still like it still feel a little bit of a sting if that happens because it's still 20-ish minutes. It's not like it's insignificant, but it's not like you're losing a ton of progress here. We did mention that the first couple of sections you need to move through as quickly as possible, otherwise you face the prospect of constantly having enemies spawn and run towards you. The later sections, once you get past the hallway, the second set of stages or the second stage, everything else past that point are all planned out fights. So you can take as much time as you want. There's not going to be additional enemies spawning beyond that point. Beyond how deadly the enemies could be, there is actually a trap included in the game in the second stage in the hallway there is a gate trap, which is kind of devious if you don't know about it. Effectively, what happens is you get up to the end of that hallway and you think you you defeat the bad guy at the end of that hallway and you see the exit and you think, okay, I'm, I'm good to move on to the next area. Well, if you approach the end of the hallway, a gate will crash down and kill you unless you bait it out, meaning you kind of inch up a little bit and you can kick 
as well when you get close to the edge of the screen. That will also trip the sensor that would make the gate fall and then just wait for the gate to rise up. And as it's rising up, you can sneak forward into the next area of the level. So if you do walk into that gate or if you walk under that gate while it's while it's coming down, you will get crushed. You'll die. You'll have to restart the game. One important safety tip you cannot or should not walk through doorways if you're not in a fighting stance because there are a couple of sections where you may run into an enemy and die. Once again, if you're not in fighting stance, if you're in your movement stance, you will die immediately upon getting any sort of contact from an enemy. At the bottom of the screen, there are life bars of sorts. And I say of sorts because it's not like it's just a bar that has one colored in kind of color that depletes over time. This is really more of a, it's almost like a back and forth kind of game, a momentum meter, I called it earlier. And I don't think Mechner has referred to it like that, but that's basically what it is. Because when you enter any fight, you have a certain amount of maximum health that is granted to you for that fight. And over the course of the fight, you may take damage and and you might lose some of that HP. If you avoid battle though if you avoid damage for a certain period of time in that fight your health will start to regenerate up until that maximum point of health for that particular fight and the way it works is the farther you go in the game the less your available max hit points are for a given fight so that's a way that that mechner added some difficulty to the game as you would go on it was meant to symbolize the fact that the farther you went, the harder the fights would come. The fighting and the fighting mechanics themselves and the movesets remain the same. So that was one way that that Mechner was able to control the difficulty of the experience the further that you went. So there are a couple of variations of standard fights. Most of the time you're fighting these guards and it's punch or kick, high, medium, low, and that's what the guards do as well. You do eventually have to fight the eagle or vulture pet of the main bad guy and when he flies into the screen he flies in either at the top middle or lower section of the screen and you have to time your attack in order to hit him otherwise he will hit you and take away some of your hit points it's really more of a hindrance versus a significant issue because the timing between his attacks is usually slow enough that you'll be able to regenerate some hit points in between so he doesn't really have a chance of truly killing you except for near the end of the game you do fight him one-on-one in a prolonged battle and if you don't get the timing right for attacking him and getting him down at that point then there's a real possibility that you might fail and have to restart the game the eagle or vulture does attack at different points prior to that and he only swoops in does a couple attacks if you miss him and then he goes away for a while so it's not like it's a continuous kind of thing Now, Akuma, who is the main boss of the game, he is also a bit different than the traditional guards because his attack speed is doubled. He attacks at the very same speed that you attack, and that makes his fight a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more interesting, because the way the fights generally play out is you end up spamming a certain attack for a certain period of time where you wait for the enemy to make a mistake and then you attack and you try to punish those mistakes. It's very much something where you have to pay attention to what moves are happening. Otherwise, you have the potential of getting hurt yourself. Akuma moves at double the speed of a traditional enemy. So it does make it a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more difficult, but 
it really isn't too bad. It is definitely interesting that Mechner decided to speed up the movement for the main bad guy. It kind of makes sense that he would be on par with you as a true karate master versus the guards that were probably less skilled than what you both are. That's my own headcanon kind of making stuff up. I don't know that that was really the rationale behind what Mechner did, but it kind of makes sense to me in my head. Eventually, assuming you persevere, you will beat Akuma at the end of the game, and that will then allow you to enter the princess's cell and save her. So you can run up to the princess. If you run up in movement stance, you will give her a big hug, and the game will end, and it will give you a brief ending with some ending text to tell you how good of a job you did and that the job of a karateka is never done. But... If you approach the princess in your fighting stance, she's going to think you're a guard and will kick you in a very precarious position or situation or um, location. She'll just kick you and it'll be bad and you'll lose the game. So that one would probably hurt to beat the game, to beat every enemy in the game and you forget to drop out of fighting stance and you go up to the princess and she kicks you one time and... I guess, basically kills you. I mean, probably not truly kills you, but you have to restart the game anyway. The reason that was provided in the game is that she may mistake you for a guard, and that's why when you approach her in a fighting stance, she thinks you might be evil, so she kicks you. But honestly, you literally just saved her, and sometimes you're even fighting the main bad guy in her cell, so that doesn't really hold up for me. Regardless, the entire experience was very much influenced by martial arts dual kind of films, and it replicates that feel really well. Before we go into the individual elements of the game, like the graphics and the sound and the music, I do want to take a look at the back of the box because back now, back then in particular, around the early 80s, you really didn't have a whole heck of a lot to go on other than what the box may say or what the box may look like if you're in a computer store looking around trying to figure out what the next thing is that you want to buy. Uh, It's not like we had the internet back then. It's not even like there were a ton of publications, although there were some reviews and things that would eventually pop up for Karateka. They weren't necessarily widely distributed. So for Karateka, the back of the box says Karateka by Jordan Mechner. Suspenseful, movie-like story, smoothly animated characters, scrolling backgrounds, and realistic karate fighting. Returning home after years of study under a master of karate, you find your village burned to the ground. Your friends and family are scattered, your bride-to-be stolen by Akuma, the warlord whose oppressive shadow has darkened your village since before you were born. Your grief and rage turn to cold determination. You vow never again to submit to the evil warlord. You know you must avenge your village and rescue your beloved Princess Mariko from Akuma's Mountain Fortress. Alone, armed only with your knowledge of karate, you must outfight Akuma's vicious warriors, each one more powerful than the last. Fight on, deep into the heart of the palace, where to rescue Mariko, you must confront the cruel Akuma himself in hand-to-hand combat. Put fear and self-concern behind you. Focus your will on your objective, accepting death as a possibility and do what you have chosen to do. This is the way of the Karataka. So then there's a few uh, screenshots of the game back there. Uh, Honestly, the the story sounds great. If I were looking at games, when most of the time games of that time 
the story was literally blow stuff up, get a better score. This would have appealed to me because I love narratives in games and I love story driven experiences. So it sounded good to me. I would have probably bought it if I saw that on the shelf back in the early 80s. So now let's start talking about some of the more specific elements of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. And I have to say, this is a game from 1984. So don't expect tons of colors or detailed scenes here. This is not something where you're going to get a ton of graphical fidelity. But I truly believe the graphics are beautiful in their simplicity. The characters have enough diversity to be distinct, mostly. Uh, The guards kind of all look very similar. The Akuma design, though, definitely felt like a martial arts shogun kind of person. And it's awesome as you're working your way through the game. When you finally get up to the big bad guy, you're in your karate gi, and Akuma is in this, this big martial arts warlord kind of attire, And it's like this awesome one-on-one kind of battle. The graphics and the design of the characters lend themselves very well to that cinematic kind of feel. Even the environments, like we've been talking about, had a very cinematic quality to it. The mountains in the background, the windows that you can actually see through to the backgrounds that were on the prior stages or in the prior stages. It did appear to be an early version of Parallax Scrolling. The game box says, hey, scrolling backgrounds. I don't know if it was truly quote-unquote Parallax Scrolling, but it certainly felt like it added some depth to the experience, and and I think it worked really well. Uh, Regardless, it was just really well done. The graphics were really well done for the time, and it's proof that you don't need millions of colors to be effective. The animations were really smooth. Rotoscoping definitely used uh, very effectively within the game. And I will say, it sounds probably silly. My favorite animation in the entire game, it's not a punch, it's not a kick. It is the simple act of walking forward when you're in fighting stance, but not fighting someone. And what happens when you move forward, when you're walking forward in fighting stance, is your one leg crosses behind the other as you move forward. And it just feels so cinematic and lifelike. For a game that's almost 40 years old, it is absolutely crazy how real and how just... It just felt great. I'm sorry, I'm losing the words here, but it just looked really good. It was really well done for the time. Moving on to the sound and music, there's really not a whole heck of a lot to say here. The music was restricted to only a couple parts of the game, all of which played outside of any sort of action scene. So you didn't really have background music here. The sound effects were really primitive, but they were mostly fine. The most distinct sound effect in the entire game is the screech of the of the vulture. You hear that noise, and if you hear that noise, you want to get into fighting stance immediately because if it swoops in, and this happened to me the first time I was playing a game, I was walking forward, or, or I was running forward in the one stage, and I heard this this kind of screechy noise, and I thought to myself, oh, you know, I bet that that's the uh, vulture that's coming at me because there was a cutscene that played previously that showed Akuma sending his pet vulture out after you. So I thought to myself, oh yeah, that's probably the vulture that's coming up. And I didn't think that the vulture would literally kill me by touching me if I wasn't in fighting stance. So I did think though that 
it was ingenious that Mechner put that auditory tell in the game, because otherwise I could see it getting really frustrating if you're just walking forward and suddenly a vulture comes out of nowhere, hits you once and drops you dead. But with the auditory clue there, it allows you to take action and drop into fighting stance, which then allows you to survive any sort of attack from the vulture. So I thought that was a really nicely done way of giving you that hint or that clue that something bad is happening. I will say, even though there wasn't a ton of music, the music that did exist was good, but it was really hampered by the technology of the time. It was very primitive. And if you listen to it today, unless you have some sort of nostalgia for the music, I don't think it's going to be all that effective. It matches, it works within the context of the game. It's not going to be something that sets your socks on fire today just because we're used to so much more in the music and sound that we get in games today. So the narrative and the story, we're going to shift over to that. It is a simple story, but it is effective. And we've kind of talked about this already. You have to save the love of your life, the princess who has been kidnapped by the warlord Akuma. And to do that, you have to assault his fortress and defeat all of his guards. There are cutscenes that play throughout the game, and most of the time those cutscenes are showing what's happening to Mariko and how Akuma is reacting to your overall progress through his fortress. Most of that is just Akuma pointing at the door or guards that are coming in and sending more guards after you. The cutscenes with Mariko is basically just her hanging out in her cell. There is no dialogue, there is no text during the actual game. There are some text-based descriptions at the beginning and end of the game, but nothing during the game itself. So the narrative is simple, and the presentation is minimalistic, but for me, the imagination, and my imagination when I'm playing this game, it filled in the blank. It's like Mechner knew what people would think if presented with these simple scenes. He didn't have to have a ton of story exposition. He didn't have to have screens full of text telling you what was happening. The way that the narrative was designed and the way that the graphical and auditory elements were designed in conjunction with that narrative, it made it so that you knew exactly what was happening without needing text. Nothing had to be made explicit. It was very much just understood as you were working through the scenes. And because of that, the story felt more involved than what was actually presented on the screen. Because imagination can be a powerful thing. And if you let yourself imagine and you let yourself get enveloped in the game world, your imagination will fill in the blanks that exist because the narrative isn't quite so explicitly defined. Moving on to the playability and controls, they're pretty simple by today's standards. You have these two stances, which are fighting stance and movement stance. In movement stance, you cannot attack, but you can bow and run forward. In fighting stance, you can inch forward or you can throw one of six different moves, high, medium, low punches and kicks. Now, there are some specific mechanics around the individual punches and kicks. When you're using your kicks, they are limited to throwing three in a row before you need to put your leg down to rest briefly. So you can't just spam kicks continuously. Punches, you can. You can throw as many punches as you want, but they have a much shorter range than kicks. So the way gameplay eventually plays out is that it's effectively a timing-based fight. You need to observe your enemy's behavior you move forward and strike whenever there's an opening, 
or sometimes counterattack if the enemy tries to throw a punch or a kick and doesn't hit you because they're they're punching and they're out of range and maybe you can kick because your your kick is closer in range than the punch would be so there is some strategy there i do want to say you should not be afraid to back away if you need to because you will regenerate hit points over time so don't be afraid to to back away a little bit and regenerate some life if you need to because there are some fights that can sometimes go go not your way and just backing off and and just regenerating a little bit can oftentimes turn the tide of battle i do want to say that movement in fighting stance is a bit tricky because a lot of times your enemy will attack you while you're moving which could knock you back that's why it's it's very important to watch the timing if you move forward while your enemy is attacking you will not make any progress. They will knock you back. They'll drop some of your hit points off, and it's just not going to be something you'll be successful with. That said, you can punch while moving, but you need to be stationary before you can kick. So there is some additional strategy there as well. You could press forward and just continuously hit the punch key, and you would be able to potentially attack an enemy and be very much more aggressive than what you would otherwise be you can't do that with the kicks but you can do it with punches so the way i ended up playing this game because i wasn't having a ton of success up front so i had to figure out what worked for me and for my play style i ended up playing the game almost exclusively using kicks i really appreciated the longer range that kicks had because it made all of those attacks safer and even though there were some limitations with using kicks that you could only use three at a time before you needed a a, pretty much a split second of rest it wasn't that big of an impact i do appreciate the addition of punches as a possible move but from my standpoint they just really aren't that effective so you want proof of that at least from my perspective the proof there is that If your enemy starts throwing a series of punches and you're in range, you can fire off a ton of unanswered kicks that can really change things in your favor. If the enemy is punching and not hitting you because you're out of range, but your kick is in range, you will wreck that enemy. And it's it's awesome when that happens, at least for you. It's awesome when you see the enemy start to go into a series of punches. You're like, oh, yeah, now I can unload on the guy. So the controls here were very simple, but there is the appearance of more depth than's really there. And once again, your imagination kind of fills in the gap. So it feels like it's a more in-depth fighting system than what it really is. At the end of the day, it's a very simplistic fighting style and a fighting system. But your imagination makes you think, oh, this is, this is a lot more there than what is actually coded or programmed into the game. It was very well designed for the time, and it absolutely still works fine today. Overall, how did it feel to play the game today versus when it was released? I have to admit, when I first started playing, I kind of thought, is this it? It just seemed very simple from today's standards. But as I kept playing, I started to become entranced by the game. The rhythm of the one-on-one combat, the back and forth between your enemy and you, the cinematic feel when your life is reduced to a sliver of health, forcing you to retreat briefly, but then you come back with several kicks as your HP starts to regenerate slowly, and you ultimately come back to survive and win the battle. It feels surprisingly awesome, (laughs) and I... I don't know why 
I think it's the imagination thing. I think it's because I'm kind of picturing a much more in-depth fight than what I'm seeing on the screen, but it just works. Somehow, the simplicity of the game and the graphics and the controls meld together and it just lets your imagination take over and create a much more complex narrative and feeling. It's literally like you're being tricked into believing you're experiencing something more in-depth than the reality of what you're playing. To me, this is a sign of an excellent design and a true flair for pacing and cinematic presentation. It felt great to get better at the game and finally beat it. That being said, the game is very short. And once you get a feel for the combat, you're going to beat it in around 20 minutes or so max. There isn't really that much variety in enemies. There's no real artificial intelligence, though it does seem like some enemies have a different style of fighting. Some are a bit more aggressive. Others seem more defensive. I don't know if it was programmed that way, but it definitely felt like there were some rudimentary differences to the various fights, albeit not really dramatic. Before you get used to the game, though, it is pretty brutal, and the fact that you need to restart from the very beginning anytime you die is definitely old school design. And there are a couple of other unfair things that happen, unless you know what to expect. The first time you encounter the vulture in stage two, if you don't realize what the sound effect is, the whole screeching sound that the vulture has, and you keep running forward without being in a fighting stance, you will die as soon as that vulture hits you. I kind of think that's a little unfair, maybe. I mean, once you learn it, once you have it happen to you once, it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. But still, for not having known that, it is telegraphed, but you don't know what the telegraph is. So just something that is slightly unfair, I guess, to a first-time player. And then the other aspect, which is also in the second stage, is the gate trap at the end of that stage. That one, I will say... I got more irritated with that one than I did with the hawk because it's not exactly the simplest thing to get the gate to trigger without setting the trap off and dying. Plus, if you're going through the game normally, there is no way you would expect that gate to slam shut. You already went through the first stage. You went through the passageway. No issue. No gate falling on you. There would be no reason to assume that a gate was going to fall on you later. So when you get through there, and it falls on you that first time you have to restart the game, you kind of think, oh, come on, man. That's, that's a little unfair. It just doesn't it doesn't feel right. It wasn't a horrible thing. But if you're not ready for classic game design that doesn't hold your hand and does teach you through some degree of trial and error and learning from your deaths, it might be a little bit off-putting. So just a warning out there. Go into this game with the right mindset before you start playing it. So, overall, what is our verdict? How did the game hold up today? Well, it's obvious this is an older game. It is very apparent that this game is from 1984. That said, it's also a really well-designed game, and one that, after a little bit of getting used to, is really fun to play. And after beating it a couple times, you still kind of want to play it. The simplicity and rhythmic back-and-forth nature of the combat is addicting. I don't know that this is something that everyone will enjoy, though, but I do think there's a lot of goodness here, especially when you consider that this is a game from nearly 40 years ago. It remains very playable and fun to this day. So for those reasons, Karataka is one of our golden oldies. 
I do recommend you experience it, both because it's fun and also because it is an important release in gaming history. Give it a shot if you haven't played it before, and you'll see an early title in computer gaming history that, while admittedly a simple, straightforward experience, really does still hold up today. That was our episode on Karataka. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to let me know how I'm doing or give suggestions for future episodes or talk about prior episodes or Karataka or any other game or classical technology, I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple ways you can reach out. You can either send me a note on Twitter. I have the handle at ClassicGamingT. And I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So feel free to shoot me a note on either of those places. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Sewer Shark. I'm excited about that one because it's an FMV or full motion video title. And you guys know I love full motion video. So we're going to talk about that in around a week. Feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of the experience. I'd love to hear what you guys are thinking. At the same time, I recognize you're listening to this podcast on one of any number of podcast services or aggregation engines. It'd be great if you could leave us a review. I would love to know what you're thinking and what you think of the content and just the overall structure of the podcast. This is not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. It's really all about figuring out what we need to do to make this the best darn possible podcast it can be. And the only way to do that is to get feedback from everybody to make sure that we are hitting that mark. We are still growing. We're still developing the community. It's going to continue to do that ad nauseum into the future. But I really want to make sure that we are focusing on the right things and are delivering the content that you all want to listen to. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Sewer Shark. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. 